Please, don't be alarmed. We're not going to harm anyone. We're mutants. We're not what you think. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain? They have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. There are forces in this world who believe that a war is coming. We're here to stay. The next move is yours. We'll be watching. Hang on to something. Welcome to Now Playing's X-Men Retrospective Series. Welcome to Mutant High. Part of the Now Playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. You talk pretty tough for a guy in a cape. Hosted by Jacob. You know all those dangerous mutants you hear about on the news? I'm the worst one. Stuart. Someone who hates mutants. Who certainly keeps them strange company. And Arnie. I didn't realize Xavier was taken in animals. Even animals as unique as you. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of the series. Who will you stand with? The humans or us? Culminating in a weekend of release review of the newest X-Men film, X-Men First Class. They will never, ever forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this. Today we're discussing X2, X-Men United, starring Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, Ian McKellen, Halle Berry, Famke Jensen, James Marsden, Anna Paquit, Brian Cox, Alan Cumming, Sean Ashmore, directed by Brian Singer. Guten Tag, this is Arnie, but in the Munich Circus, I was known as the Incredible Nightcrawler. Incredible, indeed. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, a podcasting host that is a god among insects. We are back, still leading up to X-Men First Class, continuing our look back at the X-Men films. And as we discussed last time, in the year 2000, X-Men really reignited the superhero film craze. And by the time X-Men 2 came out in 2003, it was a totally different landscape. I mean, if X-Men started the fire, Spider-Man in 2002 was the napalm. Sure. And I'm quite sure that Spider-Man would have happened regardless of whether X-Men did or not. But here's the difference. I don't think that there was very much confidence that mainstream audiences were going to watch a bunch of people with these hairdos and outfits fight other people with these hairdos and outfits. (laughs) And X-Men proved them wrong. With a fairly meager budget for a summer action film, they really cleaned up and they brought it back, giving Bryan Singer total control this time. I feel like it is definitely more of an actualized movie than it was the last time. Bigger budget, more centralized focus. Everything feels much more epic this time. And you can just tell they're walking with a strut of confidence they did not have the last time when they made the first one. I agree. It seems like here everything has been taken up a notch. And whether it's the confidence that comes with success or whether it's the fact that they had a lot more money, whatever it is that brought them to this point, it feels like this is a huge step up. I can't believe that Singer, I actually went back and looked to see what Singer did in the meantime, because this film feels different and nothing. Yeah. He went straight from one to the other, but this one has such a different feel as we'll talk about. Did you guys see it in the movie theaters when it came out? Were you excited? Were you primed for it? I did see it in the theaters. You know, people had said it's even better than the first one. I thought the first one was was all right. And so if this one's better, yeah, I'm going to, of course, I was going to go out and see it in the theaters. I mean, the, the first one was good enough that I was impressed 
impressed that they could pull something like this off. And I, of course, went to see it in theaters. I see every superhero film in theaters just about. And so, yeah, I was there. But as we recall from the last podcast, I wasn't all that keen on X-Men 1. I kind of felt like it had some good things going for it, but it left me cold. I hadn't seen it again. I went into X-Men 2 because I'd heard it was better, and my wife had really enjoyed the first X-Men. She was really pushing for X-Men 2 in a summer where I was pushing for Tomb Raider 2. And honestly, that summer, though, the movie I was looking most forward to was Hulk, which we will get to next year. And I was happily impressed. I did think it was a step up. We didn't know which way it was going to go. They proved that they could make a movie franchise out of it, but we weren't sure if it was going to be one of the top tier ones or whether it would just get progressively less interesting as they went along. We didn't know if it had peaked already. You know, and I, as the newbie, as the person that doesn't go see comic book movies in theaters, even I went to this one. I saw the original X-Men on video, didn't think I was going to like anything about it, but end up thinking, huh, this is interesting, and made a point the whole summer it came out summer 2003 i was out of the country and not near any movie theater i didn't see another movie this summer but this one and matrix reloaded opened at the beginning of summer i saw both and saw no other film and yes x2 was more impressive i was surprised at how much more impressive it was than the heavily hyped matrix reloaded So, Arnie, how about a plot summary? It's been only a few weeks since the events in X-Men 1 where evil mutant leader Magneto attempted to change all the world leaders into mutants, but he was stopped by the X-Men and imprisoned in a cell brought to you by Rubbermaid. Don't you wish your prison cell was made by Rubbermaid? His shape-shifting accomplice, Mystique, had taken on the persona of anti-mutant crusader Senator Robert Kelly and used his vote in the Senate to stop Kelly's Mutant Registration Act from passing. But despite Senator Kelly's change of stance, man's persecution of mutants is far from over. And with Kelly no longer taking the charge, the torch is being carried by Colonel William Stryker, played by Brian Cox. Stryker was a military scientist who had a background experimenting on mutants. Stryker's son Jason was born a mutant with the power to create powerful illusions, and Stryker then turned his son into one of his experiments, lobotomizing the boy and realizing that Jason's spinal fluid, when applied to a wound at the back of someone's neck, would put them completely under Stryker's control. When our movie starts, Stryker had taken control of Kurt Wagner, a blue-skinned, three-fingered, tailed mutant who went by the codename Nightcrawler. Under Stryker's control, Nightcrawler uses his teleportation powers to infiltrate the White House and attempt to assassinate the president, but he's narrowly stopped by a Secret Service member. But while Nightcrawler's assassination attempt failed, Stryker's plan was a success. Nightcrawler's attack convinced the president that mutants are terrorists, and the president's fear grants Stryker the emergency power he needs to order a commando raid on Professor Xavier's mansion where Stryker can get at his true goal, Professor X's mutant tracking computer, Cerebro. Using Jason's brain juice, Stryker had interrogated Magneto, who helped Charles Xavier build Cerebro and discovered the power of the device. Stryker then kidnapped Charles and Cyclops, and though Xavier's psychic powers were too strong for Jason's brain juice to affect him, the lobotomized Jason Stryker himself is able to create illusions Xavier feels are completely real. Stryker's commandos raid Xavier's mansion, fought off by Wolverine, who had returned after finding the Canadian military base he'd sought out to discover his past abandoned. Wolverine rescues the students, escaping with Rogue, Rogue's boyfriend, Bobby Iceman Drake, played by Sean Ashmore, reprising his minor role from the first film, and Iceman 
man's friend John, who goes by the name Pyro and has the power to control flames. The four try to find refuge at Iceman's parents' house, but when the parents discover Bobby is a mutant, Bobby's brother calls the police and Pyro takes it on himself to flambe the police officers so they can escape. But with Cerebro now in his control, Stryker intends to have Xavier use it to kill all mutants across the globe with one psychic sweep. However, aided by Mystique, Magneto is able to escape his plastic prison, and realizing the threat Stryker poses, he and Mystique join forces with the remaining X-Men and Nightcrawler who Jean Grey and Storm had tracked down to stop Stryker. Nightcrawler reveals Stryker's base is the same one Logan had visited previously, but Stryker's installation was subterranean while the base appeared abandoned. The mutants launch a raid on the base, and there Wolverine learns of his past, that at that base he was one of Stryker's experiments. Stryker was the one who had the adamantium put in Wolverine, but then Stryker has Wolverine 2.0, a female healer named Lady Deathstrike with extended adamantium fingernails attack Logan. Magneto and Mystique work their way to Cerebro, and there, rather than rescue Xavier, Magneto rewires Cerebro and has Jason order Xavier to kill all the normal humans on Earth, ending mutant persecution. Magneto and Mystique kill Stryker and steal one of his planes to escape, joined by Pyro, who leaves the X-Men to join Magneto's Brotherhood. Xavier's psychic onslaught is stopped by Storm and Nightcrawler, who also rescue Cyclops from Stryker's mind control. But the fight breaks a nearby dam. Jean, whose power had been growing exponentially since her use of Cerebro in X-Men 1, sacrifices herself to use her telekinetic power to hold back the water while the rest of the X-Men escape in their jet. Professor X then appears to the president in the White House in the middle of a presidential address about the mutant menace. Xavier explains to the president that he is at a crossroads regarding mutants and convinces the president to work towards peace with mutants rather than war against them. And just before credits roll, we return to the base at Alkali, Jean's Grey's place of death, to see a shape somewhat like a phoenix swimming under the water, which will be continued in part three. You know, Arnie, you said what the first one I think is a criticism we all had with the action. It wasn't up to par with what we'd expect from a superhero action movie. Now, I I thought this introduction with Nightcrawler storming the White House, I thought they had turned it up a notch, and I I thought this was a great scene. I mean, what was your reaction to this? Did this make up for the lackluster from the first film? I said a few minutes ago that I went to see what Brian Singer had directed in between, because sometime between the last one and this one, damn, boy learned how to shoot some action. I really think it's a a question of money here. They probably had double the budget they did the last time, and Singer has total creative control. Not something that's always given when you're starting out helming a property like X-Men. I feel like he's coming to his own. He's matured. He is confident that he's no longer the indie guy that, you know, works with meager budgets. He can do this. He can be epic. And this scene is awesome. It's terrifying. I got to tell you, as someone that doesn't know these characters, I don't know Nightcrawler from Sandman or whatever, but this guy is absolutely terrifying. The jagged teeth, when the tail comes up, I'm like, I was terrified of him. I thought he was truly a threat. And I had no idea how his storyline was going to play out in the thing. I assumed he was the new villain. And Alan Cumming, what an unusual casting choice there. (laughs) But he is great in this role. And the look that they gave him, a mixture of practicals and CGIs, it really works. It is so much better than most makeup jobs up to this point. And they did change his look for the film because in the comic, he actually has fur on him. It's not long fur, but he has short blue fur all around him. And I guess that was too much to do whether the makeup or trying to CGI all that fur. So they did alter his look where he has, you know, all these ritual scarrings on his skin. He doesn't have the fur, but for the most part, yeah, they keep that look. It's a great look. I love the way they demonstrate his power to teleport with the mist that shoots out when he disappears. I mean, I thought they did a great job with Nightcrawler. You have to 
think they'd be tempted to go all CGI with this character, right? I mean, they'd succeeded with that with Gollum and Lord of the Rings. Hulk was coming out the same summer, all CGI Hulk, no more Lou Ferrigno. So I would think that for a character that has to teleport all over and everything, that would just seem like a reasonable alternative. But the way it plays out, and especially in this movie, which as we said about the last one, the characters are so important. I'm so glad they didn't go CGI because especially at this point of CGI evolution, I just don't think it was there enough to give the emotions on the face that Alan Cumming brings. No, as we learn about his character, he really becomes more sympathetic. We need to see that human underneath the blue makeup. If it were CGI, that would distance us too much. We wouldn't have sympathy for him. We wouldn't feel for him as a puppet to Stryker. But the scene works great. I particularly like the puffs of blue smoke. It's a nice touch there. Do you guys think that maybe uh, Singer had been watching Matrix, though? I felt like some of this was bullet-timed, for sure. Well, wasn't everything influenced by that first Matrix film? I mean, I, I felt like a lot of action movies around this time were, were trying to do the bullet time or the slow down, slow motion, spinning cameras, all that. I mean, I thought it worked here. I love, you know, Nightcrawler goes up to do a roundhouse kick, kicks one guy, disappears, reappears on another side of the room, still doing that same kick and hits another guy. I mean, I... Yeah, it's influenced by the Matrix, but I like how they used his teleportation to really give an extra oomph to it. No, I agree, but I think that that's the film school Brian Singer had in between X-Men 1 and X-Men 2 here, is that he realized this is the way to play these fights. Possibly, but I don't know. I didn't see too much bullet time from my recollection, but I can't recall ever seeing a fight scene like this because of the teleportation. Just I've just never seen a fight scene that was choreographed this way. But a couple of the things that got me when I realized something was different was like when the camera goes through the peephole on the door. I mean, everything here was kinetic and exciting. And I don't know. I don't go back and read old reviews when we do now playing because I want to bring my own opinion. But did other people, critics, think that the first one also lacked action? Is this singer's way of throwing that gauntlet down? I think it was a, probably a general criticism of the entire movie was that that was the weakest part. That the movie was surprisingly intellectual and challenging as a battle of the mind, as a chess game. But when it came time for the people to fight, I can't imagine too many people thought it was any more than adequate. But problem solved. I think this is a great introduction and sucks us into this world more than I was the first time. I was definitely invested. I definitely wanted to know who Nightcrawler was. And what this meant for the X-Men that were trying to do positive PR for the humans that didn't trust them so much. That said, I'm kind of disappointed with how this story eventually plays out. Nightcrawler is so exciting here that you see him and you immediately think, well, my God, how could anyone stand up to this, right? I mean, he's taking down the entire Secret Service single-handedly. Well, he never fights again. And this is going to be a problem for me, I think, throughout this film is you have this great opening and... You know, movie logic is you have to keep upping the choreography, upping everything by the end of the film. And yeah, I think you start off with probably the best fight right here with Nightcrawler taking everyone out because he doesn't do anything. The rest of the time he he moans and, and, and prays for the rest of the film, it seems. <laughs> well, OK, I, I, I think that's a little reductive. I mean, he plays a role here, but I hear what you're saying. He's a lover, not a fighter. <laughs> He's a lover of our savior. That, that's about <laughs> it. Which begs an interesting question. Was Jesus a mutant walking on water and all that? 
Maybe he just saw him as an older brother. I don't know. But he does got the Jesus on him. He likes him. Now, I was really struck by the scarring on Nightcrawler. Jacob, is that from the comic? I just thought he was blue. I didn't think he had, like, all these ritualistic designs on him. No, like like I said, in the comic, he has blue fur on him. He doesn't have the scarring. That's something they added for the movie. I'm guessing just to make him a little bit more dramatic, give him a little bit more depth, showing how far reaching his religious convictions are that he's willing to scar himself with these angelic signs for every time he sinned. So I, I, I thought it was an interesting take on him. I actually thought it would be interesting to explore what is religion like in the age of superheroes. It's something, you know, with comics, I've always been fascinated about how would religion change when you have gods walking among you? And so why would this mutant, we talked about how the first X-Men film was more cerebral and explored the characters. It's something I find interesting. I wouldn't have minded if they would have explored why is Nightcrawler so religious? Why does he have this faith when he well, has these powers? Well, he does talk about it a little with Storm. One of the few bones they throw to Storm here is that <laughs> she has to sort of be his chaperone. And, you know, she's just less willing to uh, believe or put her trust in faith. And he's sort of the one that gets her thinking about a higher power, that she isn't the highest power. Well, yeah, they do give about two lines to that idea. I would have liked more. It's <laughs> it's something that's not developed in the film, which is odd because it becomes kind of a big deal. There's a big line about it towards the climax of the film. So I wish they would have just developed that a little bit more. I don't know. I actually found the scarring. Well, yeah, they do mention the religious implications of them. I'm probably going to pull out a very obscure reference, but Stuart, maybe you'll get it. It was reminding me of, honestly, Cabal from the film Nightbreed. Sure. You have lots of people that are playing creatures that still need to be human. I don't think Singer ever wants us to feel like these are monsters. And so I think when you say, why not CGI? Why are these people in prosthetics? I think that he never wants to get it too far away from an actor. Their eyes, their physicality, their flesh, not their fur. We want to see them. It just humanizes them. I want to state, when I said, why didn't they? I'm not saying that I think they should have. <laughs> no, no. The correct choice was made here. This is the way to depict them. If it were made today, God knows, it would probably be Avatar. And while that worked for Avatar in a 3D setting, I don't know, playing in 2D on a TV, that it would hold up. The other thing I noticed with this scene, I had complained last time about the action. They threw down the action. I'd also complained last time about the music. And I love that they went with like a classical score here. I do bring some baggage to this. Again, I've not read a lot of comics, but I'd read some. I knew a little bit about Nightcrawler. I knew he was German. And so when they start playing this, I honestly, I thought it was funny. I thought they were playing Wagner music while Wagner attacked, but it turned out it was Mozart. But still a really good music choice here. It does. It has a different tonal quality. It feels less action-y and much more orchestral and epic. I just felt like the frame of reference here was Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I'm still not sure how I feel about this more operatic score at the beginning, this opening scene. Stuart, you said it feels more epic. Uh, yeah, it does give it that feel, but I don't know. It's just weird watching superheroes fight to classical music. I don't know. It took me out of the film. It, it made me think, what am I watching here? I liked it. I think for the White House, I thought that was a good musical choice for there versus, you know, the kind of more generic score that fills the rest of the film. Well, yeah, and I guess that's my problem is why isn't there classical music throughout the film? Why is it just this scene? It would have made sense if they used music by Wagner. It just seems weird because I, I don't remember this operatic, this orchestral type classical music ever coming back in the score. 
Actually, there is a part that where it becomes blaringly apparent to me, if only because it recalled a favorite movie of mine. It was the wrong choice, I think, during the prison breakout, but only because, well, when we get there, I'll elaborate. But it isn't just this one-off. They do weave it throughout the picture. I mean, when Wolverine goes to Alaska and Wolverine is there searching through the base with the cigar, I mean, it feels very open and expansive. It feels like anything could happen. Like, they finally had the money, they finally have the ability to do absolutely anything now. It doesn't feel like people in leotards trying to make it on a dollar twenty nine. Yeah, I mean, it felt like they spent more money on the opening scene than they did on the whole previous movie. And they probably did. Watching these Wolverine scenes, I was definitely continuing to have the experience that I was the last time when I watched X-Men, though. And that was, I kept feeling like there were cues and callbacks to Star Wars. Star Wars? No, I'm thinking Star Trek. This whole movie felt very Star Trek to me. Well, Singer is a known, on-the-record Trekkie, but I would also say Star Wars. I mean, this opening stuff, having it with the ice and all, I was like, oh, this is Hoth. This is how the second chapter of Star Wars did it. And later in the picture, there's a passionate scene between him and King Grey, and that totally felt like Han and Leia working out their feelings. I mean, there's a lot of Star Wars here, and Star Trek. There's a lot of both, and that's because these are the movies that Singer knows. He doesn't know X-Men. He's not referencing anything he read in the comic. He is pulling from movies and some of our most classic fantasy sci-fi movies to create the feel of this world. And I think it's a good compliment. I don't know that I would have thought X-Men was Star Wars, but he makes the good case here. You know, to some degree, maybe you're right. The reason I think I got Star Trek, well, not just the fact that it opens with Patrick Stewart giving a voiceover while we see stars fly past us, but also because one thing about Star Wars, especially the original Star Wars movies, is the cast was very small. Star Trek has always had an overabundance of main characters, as I feel X-Men does here, too. It's like, when you had Star Trek the TV show, it made a lot of sense, because everybody gets their moment to shine, it's episodic, one person isn't in one episode, they're the star of the next. When you got to the Star Trek films, it always felt like everybody was fighting for screen time. And you already referenced it, I mean, look at poor Storm in this film, if you can find her. Hey, she won an Oscar! She got something to say! I mean, she's definitely more prominent than she was the last time, but I agree, they still haven't figured it out, what to do with Storm. The thing that bugged me, and maybe it's because... Because I'm the comic book guy, so I'm more familiar with the characters. I didn't get the Star Trek, Star Wars vibe. To me, this is X-Men. I get who the characters are. I don't need those references to other things as the outsider might. The thing that bugs me is Wolverine has highly tuned animal senses, and he's walking right on top of this base, this place he's been told to go to to find out about his past. And he's like, oh, nope, looks like it's been torn down. I know I have this secret mystery upbringing, but nope, nothing on this base here. I'm just going to walk away. I'm not going to sniff around at all. And I'm not going to research the area. I'm just going to go all the way back to New York. Yeah, it bugs me. Maybe, uh, Stuart, maybe that didn't bug you at all because you didn't know what was going on. But for me coming into this, just because I know Wolverine, I know his what his skills are, what his abilities are. It just didn't sit right to me. It's In this movie, they call out his hearing. They call out his smelling. You know, they call out so much of it. I don't need to read the comics to know that he should have sense something was up at that base. And yeah. He should have never found the base. I mean, that's the honest truth, is that he should have never gotten there. He should have stopped quite short and then come back and had gotten a clue about where it was. I mean... There's a great reason for him to come back. Somebody tried to assassinate the president. I don't know that the Wolverine, as I understand him, would have cared. He's a Canuck, after all. True, but perhaps I'm being a little bit 
influenced by the fact that I read the novelization written by famed X-Men scribe Chris Claremont. But in the book, it was referenced that that was a good part of the reason why he went back is because he felt a connection with the X-Men and was worried about what they were doing about this assassination. I mean, in the first film, which, again, I think was basically a Wolverine film, and this is continuing to be the Wolverine film with some X-Men around it. I mean, that first film was all about Wolverine accepting that he was going to be on this team. He finally suits up at the end. That's the big moment for him. So it, it makes sense that he'd go back. He, he's a bit more concerned about mutant relations with humanity, and he I think he would understand that a mutant trying to assassinate the president is not going to be the best thing for people of his type. So I, I could see why he'd be concerned and want to go back and help figure it out. But there's a lot of things in this film where it seems like they're setting something up that maybe they didn't need to set up or maybe didn't need to be there. Yes, they come back to this base later in the film. But, I mean, did we need this shot? They couldn't just show up? I mean, it just almost seemed like an unnecessary scene to me. It's an introductory scene. It is unnecessary. It's obnoxious that he is in Canada and then goes all the way back to the school after he left the school the last time to go find this base in Canada. It is a bit of an aborted trip. But, you know, it's just here to remind us where everybody was. You know, people may not have rewatched the last one before they went into the movie theater. They need these cues. They need to be reminded. Oh, yes. Wolverine. Cigar. He went to Alaska the motorcycle, all of this, it's helpful for those people. People like us that are going through each movie and studying it as an ongoing saga, it is superfluous. And of course, with Wolverine back, it means back to the soap opera. It means tension between Jean and Scott and Rogue and her new boyfriend, Bobby. I mean, he just brings that baggage when he comes in the screen and it complicates the school in a good way, I think. But it definitely changes the dynamic back at Xavier. I like seeing Rogue again. I liked her in the first film. I'm glad that we came back to her. You know, we talked about that, perhaps maybe a little bit of a triangle between her and Wolverine and Iceman. I, I like the conversations they have. You When they bring in Rogue's dilemma that, you know, she wants to be close to Bobby. She wants to touch him. She perhaps wants to touch him in a special way. You know, he finds out that Bobby's her boyfriend. He's like, boyfriend? So how do you guys, uh, you know, I, I like that it's a little bit more adult. They're obviously talking about doing it, and they're wondering, when you're a superhero and you could harm your partner with your powers, how do you have a relationship? I, I liked exploring human emotions through this prism of superpowers. They didn't really spend a lot of time on it, but I like the few little mentions it got. It's just too bad. I, th I feel like this is almost the last time I really saw Rogue, or, or she spoke in the film. The rest of the time, she's kind of sitting in the background, and, and she kind of takes a backseat to everyone. I really liked her in the first one. I, I wish she had more of a role in this film to play. This goes back to what I was saying about Star Trek. There's too many characters here, and so many of them are name actors that have to get their screen time that it just feels very crowded, and Rogue is one of the casualties where if your personal story isn't in some way essential to the plot, you're not going to get much screen time. And yeah, I think that Rogue, who was so central to the first one here, Rogue's along for the ride quite clearly, and that's about it. Her boyfriend and his bad influence best friend get a lot more time than she does. As it should be. I mean, I don't think that, although I liked Rogue, I don't think I wanted to see a movie in which every time we're dealing with her issues. I mean, this is a school. These are a large cast of characters. I'd like to see different characters. I think I had enough of Rogue. And, and quite honestly, I'm not sure... How does she work with the X-Men? Because it doesn't seem like her power is that helpful in any given situation. It seems like a curse. Unlike so many of the other characters that seem like, oh, wow, I'm a mutant and now I'm awesome. She really seems like I'm a mutant and I am cursed. I can never have what I want. Well, you got to think she'd be pretty handy in a fight because all she has to do is touch a person. Yeah. 
if she can reach them. I mean, if they don't like have elastic skin and can stretch away or something. I mean, it just <laughs> seems like on the list of powers that I'd want to get, this one would be low. They're not all positive, and I think that's what the interesting thing is about the X-Men. is like, oh, look, here's a bunch of superheroes, but they're not all positive superpowers. I, again, I think it's an interesting take on the superhero genre. You know, here's people with superpowers, but they're mutants. They're seen as a dangerous minority, and you got to have those characters to remind you that this is a new race of people popping up. You know, they're not all Superman and Batman. They're not always going to be the cool guy. Which is kind of why I like Professor X. There's not really a lot to Professor X that we get other than Patrick Stewart's heavy screen performance, but we like him because we understand that he's helping people that don't know how to use and harness their power into becoming superheroes. Like, that is his goal. That's what he's doing. That's why he is the good guy and Magneto is the bad guy. And here, Professor X, you know, you think he's powerless, he's in a wheelchair, he can read your mind and influence your mind, but it's all you know, very cerebral or cerebro. Here you find out, no, with a thought, he can commit genocide. Yeah, that was an interesting reveal when we finally get there, when we finally see the full extent of what Cerebro can do. You know, at first, there's just a sort of a exposition scene with him showing it off to Wolverine. Just like the map scene out of Generations, I might add. Replace Wolverine with Data. I didn't anticipate that that was going to be the final battle, that it was really about not only can you find them, you can destroy them, and them being mutants or human beings. It's a necessary setup. And it said in the beginning, I mean, he could kill a specific person just by thinking them too hard, I guess. But what isn't revealed until the very end is, yeah, it can also be widespread and hit anything at once. And so you always get the feeling he's powerful because of his mental ability, but you always think it's more of a manipulation than a killing. Question. So is Jean Grey Professor X in training? Because that's my read on it. Having never read a comic, not understand this character, I really don't get her. Is she going to be Professor X one day? Is she going to have that cognitive ability, but she just hasn't quite matured yet? Is that what I'm supposed to take away? We'll find out more in the next film, but yes, she does have more powers than is let on. You know, we talked about the first film. She could just move stuff with her mind. No, she's got more mental powers than just that, and, and she's got some some potentially very extraordinary powers, perhaps even more powerful than Professor X, which, again, we'll explore in the next film. But it is hinted at here in that museum scene, you start seeing that now she can't keep people's thoughts out of her head and she starts messing with the televisions. And I didn't even think she was doing that intentionally. I think it's just they're trying to show that she doesn't quite have the control over her powers that someone like Professor Xavier does. All I know is that she spends the whole movie with a headache, and I'm like, what's going to happen? She's clearly in transition here, but I, I don't understand it. I don't understand what she's going to become. To me, though, I'll say this, not knowing where the movies were going to take her, to me, she just felt like another one of the students. You know, there's so many, and what I do know is... Cyclops is the first lieutenant, right? If Professor X is the general, Cyclops is the one who's the strike commander. He's the Riker to Picard's Picard. Is he? That's what I took, especially from the last one. When Professor X was down, Cyclops took the lead. Yeah, Cyclops is always the one groomed to take over the X-Men if anything ever happened to Professor X. I think that's pretty clear that he's the second one in charge. He's the one that's supposed to run things if anything ever happens. 
Really? See, the weird thing is I never got the vibe that he was second in command. There were all those scenes in the first one where Professor X is like, give him an order worth following and he'll follow it. The movie was definitely setting it up that Cyclops is number two. Okay. I mean, come on. Every car and motorcycle in the, the school's garage seems to be owned by Cyclops. He's got some status. Although I had to laugh because when Wolverine's coming up the floor of the garage, I found it funny that the superheroes were driving cars and every single one had a handicapped license plate. <laughs> I thought that was a nice touch. He is blind, isn't he? <laughs> well, no, it's it's for Professor X. It had That's little wheelchairs right. on all the license plates. I don't think his wheelchair would fit in any of those sports cars, though. <laughs> Well, that's where you bring in the telekinetic. But, you know, I think this movie, it's set supposedly sometime in the near future. It does a real good job of being timeless, except for when they turn on that car radio. Bye, bye, bye. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, it's funny because it's boy bands with superheroes, I guess. Even in 2003, that was an easy joke to make. They knew that most people were over the boy band thing, even the people that had bought NSYNC. It's just uh, the one cringeworthy moment of this whole movie. Cyclops, though, speaking of Cyclops, Cyclops gets the utter shaft of this movie. And when I walked out of theater seeing this the first time, I felt bad for Cyclops as a character and James Marsden as an actor. <laughs> he gets to wheel Professor X to the prison, and then we don't see him again for about an hour and a half. I agree. That's why I'm saying is like, I feel like I get so little screen time. You're telling me that he's one of the leaders and I'm like, eh, he probably has less to do here than Storm. Well, I think the reason is because of two things. You got Halle Berry, who was vocal about how little she had to do in the first movie. And has an Oscar behind it. Yes. To now get her way. And after the second film, she said, if they don't give me more in three, I'm not coming back. Everybody had two picture deals. There was some hard negotiating for number three. And you also have the fact that, as Jacob said earlier, this is the Wolverine movie. Wolverine is the star. Wolverine is, you know, if you look at the cast billing, Wolverine is number two. So Cyclops should be the first lieutenant. He's written as the first lieutenant. But when you watch the movie, you forget there is a Cyclops. And for much of the film, a Storm, a Gene, and a Nightcrawler. And what's interesting is, and maybe we'll talk about this when we get to some of the other characters, but a lot of this film was based on an X-Men graphic novel called God Loves, Man Kills. And in that, you have a similar kidnapping scene with Professor X and Cyclops, but Storm was also involved, so they could have taken Storm out of most of this film, too, along with Cyclops, which I wouldn't have mind at all. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Storm. First of all, her wig's better. Her wig's better, and her accent's gone. Did you? Totally gone. <laughs> like one month passed, and she can speak English. I think you call it assimilation. She's now down. She's American. She's not going to mangle that South African patois anymore and, and is going to just say, hey, this is what I can do, and I'm not putting on that damn wig. And more power to you, sister, because <laughs> that really was a bad style you were given last time. You look good here. She was given bad lines, bad wig. She yeah. did get the shaft last time. So you know what happened to a toe when it gets that kind of treatment? It walks off the set. <laughs> And Halle Berry is no Toad. No, and Toad ain't here, so there you go. Like I said with Rogue, everybody has to get their moment to shine. Jacob, I'm glad they didn't put Storm in captivity with Cyclops, because otherwise Storm gets even more of a shaft twice. At least here she gets to fly the plane. 
I legitimately liked her moments with Nightcrawler. I think that they keep doing that. They keep giving her the dramatic moment. She was paired with the senator last time and had a few of those exchanges. And here she gets all of the heady debates, really. That's her role. She's, I guess, the drama actress. What I did like, though, they may not have had much to do in this movie, but Storm and Jean are actually tasked with an important mission. Go find the president's assassin. And they get to do it alone. No boys have to come along. I liked it. And they, when they find Nightcrawler, we see Nightcrawler take out the entire Secret Service on his own. But Storm and Jean take him down in no time. I liked that. I liked that they were shown to be superheroes. Oh, it took some time. I don't know how long you think the distance is from Upper State New York <laughs> to Boston, but they were in a jet plane, and they are doing nothing for women drivers anywhere by taking a day and a half to get to Boston. I'm like, where did they go? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on with the time frame. They have like an SR-71 Blackbird jet. It should take, what, 20 minutes to get to Boston? Like, why did it take forever? It seemed like they were gone for a few days. They could have walked there on their hands and been there in the, the same amount of time. <laughs> did they have to park for a while to put their makeup on and the little flip-down mirror in the jet? I don't know what was going on. It it took them forever. <laughs> That's what I mean. It's one step forward for female superheroes and then a large step back. They didn't look entirely competent, but you're right. Once they show up in the church, a bolt of lightning and same thing that happens to anything else, he's under control. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean... Honestly, Jacob, you've talked during previous podcasts about how superhero comics are male power fantasies. Wasn't it cool to see the sisters doing it for themselves? I guess because this is a huge ensemble cast, I just expect at some point for a couple of women, at some point just women alone to go out and do their thing. So it, it's not a big surprise for me, I guess, in this film. I mean, I'm much more impressed by Mystique's acrobatics and her fighting skills than Storm's ability to cast some lightning and cut a beam in half and... Jean Grey to catch a falling elf, as they call him, uh, Nightcrawler's nickname, Elf, Furry Elf, in midair. I'm with you, Jacob. I think Mystique and Magneto are more interesting than any of the X-Men, really. And it continues to be lopsided here. I definitely was more impressed with the way that she was impersonating the senator and getting it done and her breakout of Magneto, all of that. She is the real star here. She's she's much more powerful than Storm or Jean Grey. And might I just say, as the world's only Bruce Davidson fan, I was happy to see him back because I just like his presence. And so to see him back, even if he is Mystique in disguise, it was glad to see the actor back. It was a good callback. I'm glad they'd kept it consistent. It would have been very easy for them to just create a new storyline that wasn't particularly linked with what they did in the last movie, but you feel them building on something. It's escalating. There is a war coming. They are beating the drum, and you know it's going to be big when we get there. And one thing I never paid any attention to until this watching for now playing is how much time did pass between the two movies, because, you know, to me, three years passed in the real world. I assume three years passed there, but no, they mention that it's only been a couple weeks since the whole Liberty Island debacle. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like that it feels much more contiguous, like more like a miniseries than a franchise of films that could take place whenever. You know, the other thing I like about Mystique is I, I felt they really started to develop her character. You get this nice moment when Magneto and Mystique are united with the X-Men. She has this moment with Nightcrawler, which is great because they're both blue skinned freaks. And he's like, if you could you know, change your appearance to look like anyone you want. Why don't you? Why do you choose to look this way? And she's like, this is because it's, it's who I am. She seems like a very powerful character. She's very confident. It doesn't 
hurt that, you know, she's actually a supermodel in real life and she's got a body that can pull it off. But that's what I like about Mystique is, is she's confident, she's strong, she could kick butt. I thought she had some good moments in this film. She's a bisexual's wet dream, that's for sure. <laughs> you finally get a visual representation of how much fun she would be in bed because she could literally be anything you wanted at any given moment. That's a great scene she has with Wolverine when she comes to him in the tent. Bisexual, hell, pansexual. But when she turns into Stryker, do you think that's something else she's offering up? <laughs> That's what I took it as initially. She's like, you want me to be Jean? You want me to be Storm? You want me to be Rogue? You want me to be Striker? <laughs> that was my first thing was like, whoa. <laughs> but why was she into Wolverine? Like, she throws out this line, you're the only person that could ever scar me. But I thought it was a cool moment where she walks in as Jean. I, I don't know if it fooled anyone when you first saw this. But why was she into Wolverine? Was it just to have that moment? It fooled me the first time and it fooled me this time, actually. <laughs> Okay. And come on, it's Hugh Jackman. I want to f*** him. <laughs> yeah, these are the two most conventionally attractive actors in the series, and, and I think we want to see something get it on here. I mean, this is for a bigger audience than the comic book fans, and I think that there might be some in the crowd that want to see a little bump and grind. Plus, just think about the trailer. You can show Rogue on top of Wolverine. You can show Jean Grey on top of Wolverine. You're going to get the fanboys all riled up. Yeah, no, Mystique clearly becomes the star of the series in this one. Really? I don't know that I say that, but I did like her there. What I didn't like, though, is it seems like she's almost a little too perfect, right? She's a computer hacker and a pilot and a ninja and a shapeshifter. She reminds me almost of that mutant we were complaining about from Generation X. Her, her mutant oh. power is she's perfect. Yeah, Monet. God, that's <laughs> not the way to go. Don't remind me of Generation <laughs> X or Monet. <laughs> But, I mean, you see my point there, right? When she's hacking Stryker's computer and all of this, it's like, is there anything the bitch can't do? You know what it is, is Magneto is down one Brotherhood member. Is that, you know, last time there was Toad and Sabretooth and they kind of helped create the chaos. But here, everything falls on Mystique to do. So, yeah, she has to be good at everything she attempts. And we could have used, I didn't want, believe me, I did not want Sabretooth or Toad back. But we could have used one more villain in here kind of helping out and applying their skills to the breakout. I do love the breakout. First of all, you get to see Rebecca Romaine outside of makeup and looking good. Well, I'm sure there was makeup, just not blue makeup. But the breakout scene was phenomenal, wasn't it? The whole iron thing, because she ejects him. And don't you think that Mystique is just taking on his form? Isn't that what Mystique does? But no, she's injecting him with something. And I couldn't remember what she injected him with. I figured it was some kind of tranquilizer. I just trusted the movie would tell me eventually. I did not expect it to be liquid iron. Yeah, I love this scene. You know, we talked about in the first film with the super magnet that turns you into mutants, how that scene cartoony in a bad way like this breakout scene is totally cartoony and comic booky but it's the stuff i love about comic books just the absurdity of it like we're gonna inject this guy full of liquid iron magneto's gonna sense it tear it out of the security guard's body cause little bb's to fly around destroying his cell and then make a little disc and he's got his like arms folded like a genie and he's just floating across like this is the stuff i love about comic books when it's just ridiculous and absurd and completely awesome it is 
is. The only thing I could have done without is that disc. The disc was badass. Well, how was he going to get across then? Yeah, that thing retracted. He had no way to get to the exit door. I'm just saying it was a little silly that a little ball bearing could become this giant disc that could theoretically support the weight of Magneto. Well, there were several ball bearings. It wasn't just one. There were three, and he turned one of them into a disc. Arnie, he didn't need a lot. They were so concerned about metal that the guy couldn't even wear a belt. He had to wear Velcro pants. I mean, he doesn't need a lot of metal to do his thing. Clearly, I could get you with a staple and a paperclip, I think. But you know what? <laughs> you mentioned the music earlier. I got to call it out here because them playing opera with their breakout scene, was anyone thinking Silence of the Lambs? How could I not be? It was just so there. It was so in your face. But again, here's Singer taking from classic movies we know and really making this a movie and not just a comic book adaptation. I felt like I knew this scene. And Star Wars, too, when he lifts the guy up. And he's just kind of floating there like Darth Vader would do. I'm like, ah, yes. He's he's taking the best of movies we've seen in the past and really forging it here into this vision. It's helping the comic book translate for people that don't necessarily like comic books, but love movies. Let me tell you, Magneto didn't really work for me as a villain last time. I don't know exactly why he never clicked for me. In this one, though, I think a lot of it has to do with this scene and a lot of it has to do with Ian McKellen's performance. But man, you just think of him as a total badass, right? I mean, in the last one, yeah, he could control things, but he always seemed to have Sabretooth and Toad doing his dirty work. He kind of sat back. Here you get to see him go all out and just with those two little ball bearings, he can wreak so much havoc that I was just astounded and you immediately realize how powerful he truly is. But here's the thing. I've never felt that Magneto was the villain. He is an arch nemesis. But the real villain is always the humans here, right? It's never the mutants. The humans are the bad guy. The real bad guy here is Stryker. It is not Magneto. True. Magneto is a necessary evil, and he was the last time because it was the senator. He's just responding in a hyper-militant way to bad circumstances. And I think Magneto is, in many ways, the most relatable character here. We get his rage. We know what he's been through in his life. We know what he thinks is coming, and we know why he's responding the way that he does. It's inappropriate, but it's also undeniably cool, and I really like this character. And he suffers here. I mean, when we first see him, when Professor X first comes to see him, he's got a black eye. I mean, he's been bruised up. Stryker is kicking his ass. He's under Stryker's control, really. He's being forced against his will to divulge secrets about Cerebro. And he reveals that he's been being controlled by Stryker. It's a very sympathetic moment where I really feel for the guy. I don't feel that, you know, yes, he tried to kill all humans in the first film, or at least turn them into mutants. But here I actually feel bad for the guy. The way E. McClellan is able to sell that moment where he's like, I'm so sorry, Charles, I've told him everything. Like, it, it hits me when I see that scene. Yeah, Stryker's the real bad guy. I think we should get a little bit into him because I've got some questions. Is this a character from the comic books or is this a creation for the movie is he really the man that created wolverine and has he really had this backstory with professor x and his son or is that just something singer and his screenwriters came up with so a lot of this was adapted from again that graphic novel called god loves man kills and 
Colonel William Stryker in the comic is actually Reverend William Stryker. He is a Christian fundamentalist TV evangelist. Very 80s. Let me guess. Did this come out in the 80s? Yes, and it gets even better. Okay. I was actually surprised when I was reading this. It felt very post-Watchmen, Frank Miller. But no, this actually came before all that really dark stuff, which was even scarier. Really? That's interesting to me. Yes. So he was in the military in the comic, and it's been alluded to that he had something to do with the Project X program, which is the program that creates Wolverine. It never says how involved he was with that. But in the comic, he's back from the war. He's taking his wife, who is pregnant, to the hospital. They get in a car accident, so his wife has to give birth right there. She gives birth to a mutant, and so he decides he needs to kill the baby because he hates mutants, and he needs to kill his wife because she gave birth to a mutant. And then he goes on a religious crusade to kill all mutants. And he, he uses a very similar plot device that's in this film where he kidnaps Xavier and tries to get him to kill all mutants. Just to drive how insane this comic is, he provides Xavier this illusion where Xavier is being crucified on a cross and mounted on top of the World Trade Center in New York, and Storm has to cause lightning to electrocute him and kill him. Like, it's insane. So they adapted it, but thankfully they left some of those moments out of this movie that were in the comic. Yeah, You know what? So basically what they changed is the fact that it was his son that he uses to persuade Professor X and really all of the mutants under his control to do his bidding to enact their own annihilation. It plays well here I think. I think that that's a necessary story conceit. I don't know how he would have controlled Professor X otherwise. That said, I'm not sure I get what Jason does. Is the fluid that his brain producing I mean, what is it supposed to do? From the movie, what I got is it's your standard comic book mind control, right? You do this and all of a sudden it's like hypnosis, you know, the Manchurian candidate type situation. But how does it implement? Like if I got a vial of it, could I put it in the back of your neck and make you like jump around? Yeah, that's what I got is, you know, the whole very susceptible to suggestion. It didn't matter that it was Stryker giving the order, except I don't know if he was the first, but I just got that it was not person specific. But then when you got near Jason Stryker, he could project illusions and make you think whatever he wants to think is real is real. Because they kind of got about that when Professor X is getting the lowdown on that. He tries to actually make Lady Deathstrike do something for him, and it almost works before the guy puts in more juice. But I'm like, why is the juice loyal to Stryker? Why can't the juice be used by anybody? And why wouldn't Professor X, who has a higher ability of making suggestions, why can't he be the one to take control now that a mind control agent is being introduced in the bloodstream? It's not very well explained in the movie. I mean, it, it's not really based on the comic book. I think it's really ill-explained. It's like, I have magic juice, and it will work on you. Alright, and I'll just accept that, because that's what we have to do. But because Professor X is so smart, they have to put him in close proximity with Jason, and Jason can outthink him? Is he more powerful than Professor X? Because it's looking a little wheelchair versus wheelchair there. And I'm like, I think Jason's better. <laughs> well, I think before 
they put the Cerebro helmet on Professor X, didn't they have a different helmet on him to kind of stop his mental power? So Jason isn't necessarily more powerful than Professor X. He's just at an advantage because X has been neutered. Yeah, again, he's casting illusion. And at first, Professor X kind of figures it out, but it shows as it progresses, he's susceptible to the illusions and he gives in and he takes them as reality. Now, why was Jason doing this is my question. I said in the summary he was lobotomized. He's got these huge scars. Obviously, they're getting his brain juice somehow. You never really see Jason talk. You get to see the gaunt body in the wheelchair. The only time Jason speaks is when he takes on the persona of this little girl telling Xavier, kill all the mutants, kill all the mutants. Yeah, I never understood why he was so willing to take his father's commands and and act out his father's wishes. I mean, this is a guy who, as a kid, drove his mom insane until she drilled her brains out. And now he gets a partial lobotomy, so he's willing to do whatever his dad says. Like, I don't think they ever explained it. It didn't make sense. It's it's one of my problems with this film is I don't know why Jason is loyal to his dad when his whole backstory is about rebelling against his parents. You're right. We don't understand Jason, the character. We don't understand his allegiances. We don't know how aware he is of what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, he's as much a tool as the juice that comes out of his spine in this movie. He's creating the ruse for Professor X, and yet he can't understand that he's a tool for his own father's bad aims. It's a little backwards, but it's a screenwriting device. We have to go with it. I'm willing to. The movie is certainly good enough to go along. The biggest point for me was that I rewatched the ending twice because I wanted to know what happened to the character of Jason. Do they take him back to the school? No, we never see. They just kind of leave him there. I was wondering that, too. I I thought he died in the drowning. Yes, because they left him. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we're supposed to assume he died. Now, if you went on to play the video game that was a continuation of this, you find out he survived. Which I will be reviewing on the next issue of (laughs) Marvelicious Toys, which you can find at MarveliciousToys.com, continuing my review series of all the games based on X-Men movies. Wow. But yeah, I just assumed he died when the whole base went down. Well, you know, you said, Stuart, about having a henchman. He he already has another underdeveloped henchman, Lady Deathstrike, who, again, I never was a big reader of the comics. I don't know who she is, but her fingernail knives just don't look as sturdy or as cool as Wolverine's claws. Dude, she totally got baned in this movie. If you know anything <laughs> about Batman comics, Bane's a big character and he becomes like this cartoonish sidekick to poison ivy and batman and robin like but she yeah she's a pretty big character in the marvel universe as far especially she's she's a big villain for wolverine i mean it's her father who created the process to bind adamantium and bone i mean it's her father that's directly responsible for the technology that created wolverine oh I wouldn't have guessed that this character was actually in the comics. She feels like something totally created for the movie. I mean, I just assumed it was kind of like the TX. You know, Terminator 3 was coming out the same summer. It's like, we got to have a lady Wolverine to fight the Wolverine. Since Mystique did it last time, we can have Lady Deathstrike do it this time. Maybe it's because of her name. That's just a dumb name. She needs a better name. And again, just too stuffed to cast. Toad got more character than Deathstrike. I'm telling you, she got baned. Well, I guess you're right if she's supposed to be an interesting character i miss that but she serves the purpose that i need her to she's a henchman she's a bad guy and wolverine's gonna have a big fight with her in the end we know this if if he's got claws and she's got nails they're gonna go at it by the end that said i kept wondering if she woke up from the juice would she actually fight wolverine i got the impression no which makes her death at the end a little bit tragic i guess <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's too bad. It's what could have happened to Scott, I guess, if he didn't snap out of it. All right, let me say, though, I think this movie really suffers from flexible morality. Because, yeah, we kill Lady Deathstrike by shoving her full of adamantium and she clunks in the thing and we're supposed to cheer, right? But yeah, like we just said, was she under her own control? Could you just have tied her down and wait for the juice to wear off and she'd become an X-Man? Were we supposed to cheer, though? Like, I thought, kind of felt bad for her and I thought Wolverine, that's how it played. I don't think he was happy that he killed her. It was a survival thing, but the way the adamantium comes out of her eyes, kind of like tears, I, I thought it was kind of a tragic moment. I didn't feel like getting up and and pumping my fist. It was during the big explosive climax, so I figured it's supposed to be this movie's Wolverine Sabretooth fight and we're cheering on Wolverine. But my reason of saying this movie has flexible morality is we get one scene where Stryker orders the army to storm the school, right? And Wolverine guts them. He ruthlessly slaughters these troops. Later, we have some jets chasing after Storm and Storm uses tornadoes to blow up the jets and it's like out of the 80s G.I. Joe cartoon we have to get the scene of the person ejecting and knowing oh they went to safety see Arnie and this goes back to my problems with the first film I don't have a problem with Wolverine killing when the other X-Men do it it bothers me so I didn't have a problem with Wolverine gutting U.S. military I mean after all he is a Canadian secret agent and he's known to go into berserker rage modes when he's fighting for his life he'll take anyone out that gets close to him we see that happen in the first film with Rogue during his nightmare. When Storm does it, it bothers me because she's this trained X-Men. She's been raised by Xavier, and she's just willing to take out innocent people, especially when they're in this freaking futuristic jet that I don't understand why a missile was able to catch up to it. I don't understand why they weren't, they weren't able to hit a button and the jet just goes invisible. I mean, this is a comic book movie. That's a common theme. Wonder Woman with her invisible jet. Well, not coming from it from the comic book background. It's all the same to me, and heroes sometimes kill henchmen, and that's what happens. But... What bothers me is when Wolverine guts people, we're supposed to be cheering, like Wolverine finally got his claw on. Later on, when Pyro's doing the exact same thing, it's like, oh, Pyro, what are you doing? We must stop you. (laughs) I see your point here, but I really think most of this is a victim to the fact that it's a PG-13 movie. They may have more budget, Singer may have more clout. By the end of the day, he cannot turn this into a really nihilistic bloodbath where lots of people are dying. They don't want to create that. This is for kids. I mean, there are 12-year-old, 11-year-olds, they're trying to get to see this. So they are skirting something. I think that's what makes that scene where Wolverine goes full-on rage at the school even more impressive. It is maybe the best action scene in the movie. It certainly gives the opening a run for its money. It's another favorite moment. I thought it was tremendous, the whole staging of the raid in the school, the spooky way that it goes from someone creeping into the room and shooting tranks to Wolverine full-on with claws out, taking them all out. It was an awesome scene and needed to happen. And it originally got the movie an R rating. They had to actually cut some stuff out to get it to that PG-13. I can believe that I knew that had to be a controversial scene for the MPAA. It had to be hard because he's not just wounding them. He's not just cutting off their guns. He's impaling, ripping, gouging. The other thing, Arnie, with that, the school scene, why it could go with Wolverine, here's the U.S. military coming in and persecuting a people unrighteously. They did it on false pretense. So I guess that's why that scene doesn't bother me as much as the storm scene. They're all just troops following orders and attacking X-Men. It seemed like flexible morality, and it's more the pyro scene. It's just with the storm scene, it was like, yeah, that's very G.I. Joe, because that's what I think of every time I see that happen, right? Is The old G.I. Joe, every Cobra trooper lands safely. 
But the pyro scene, you know, Wolverine's protecting the kids, so he kills people. Wolverine just got shot in the head. Of course, they're not going to kill one of their stars, but at least not this film. But I think Pyro had a reason for blowing those cops up. And I was kind of on Pyro's side. It was good to have some more explosions. I don't think it's supposed to be morally unambiguous. I think that Pyro is a really interesting character, partly because we can understand his frustration at always having to be good, at having to be disciplined, at having to be told you're a kid, you can't use your powers responsibly yet. I understand why Pyro goes with Magneto and Mystique in the end. I would have been in the chopper with them too they're cooler <laughs> and they get stuff done yeah arnie i think you're bringing in too much what most people would expect for a superhero movie like when i see that pyro scene i think he's justified just like wolverine taking out the troops it's a life or death situation and again it's based on a false pretense they tell wolverine to drop his knives when it's part of his hand i thought that was funny and let's be clear in the school it is a swat team here to we think possibly kill certainly capture all of the attendees of xavier in the scene you're referring to pyro bobby and rogue have made it to a house in boston and some local cops have been called because someone said we've been kidnapped we don't want to see them punished in the same way they are innocent bystanders who are doing their job here's my question about the whole pyro scene and the whole scene at bobby's house where this takes place and and i guess this is getting to one of my problems with this film is its pacing and its length. What necessary information was in the scene except to provide this moment where we see, oh, maybe Pyro's willing to shift sides? Like, I felt there's too much comedy. You get the scene where Wolverine sticks his claws out because he's startled by a cat and the cat licks its claws. Yeah, but that was uh-huh. cute. I liked that. I, I did like that. Yeah, you gotta win the audience along. It can't be all brooding and 9-11 metaphors. It, we need to laugh. I just felt this scene slowed the movie down. It, it didn't really progress anything there's just times when this movie lagged you know there was a scene towards the beginning that takes place in the museum and yeah there's some information that you need to get across it just takes too long here's another scene that just it goes on too long we get again a whole other debate about mutants being outsiders with their family i got that with rogue in the first film when she ran away from family i don't need to see it again with iceman but this is not the first film if it was another scene in the first film i might agree with you but what i said i liked about the first film was that it had these characters and this scene really drives home again something that we don't get much of in this movie which is a reason to show normal people not just crazies like striker normal people and their distrust and their reaction to mutants and the whole fact is brian singer went to this not because he was an x-man fan he didn't know the x-men he liked the story of the persecution and here we get to kind of see that where bobby has to come out to his parents as being iceman and i really like that Plus, it's the only time in the movie Rogue does a damn thing. She stops Pyro. (laughs) Good point. This film has weird tonal shifts for me. You you go from this human moment with the family and the humor with the kitty to these violent scenes where Wolverine's taking out the SWAT team. It feels like there's conflicting stories going on here. Is this an action film or is is this a character-driven film? Why can't it be both? That's what I want. That's what Kick-Ass was. Yes, but this is not kick-ass. I I just didn't feel the balance was right in this film. Well, the way I see it is the heart of the movie are the debates. It is a chess match. It is about strategy. It is about ideological sides and having an argument. The fights are the punctuation. And I feel like there's more of them here. There are more exclamation points, and they are done better. 
And as such, I really feel like this is the same as the last movie, just on a grander scale. It feels like they're doing everything they did the last movie, but so much better. I feel like Singer is in control completely now. I feel it's bigger. I don't know if it's necessarily better. I'll kind of agree with you, Jacob, because I do think this movie lacks some of the punch of the last one. Maybe because there's not as many of these scenes. I don't know. I didn't feel a pacing problem when I was watching it. I do notice that this movie is a good half an hour longer than the last one. I saw it more as allowing me to catch my breath between moments of action. If we didn't have these scenes, this would be X-Men brought to you by Michael Bay. So I liked the scenes, but I don't feel that this movie pulled them off as well as last time. But I still liked them. I liked the fact that, again, with this huge cast, we needed to give the actors a chance to do something other than wave their hands with CGI effects. And maybe that's the problem for me. Yes, the action's better. I just don't think the character moments are as good. Whereas with the first X-Men film, we all agree action wasn't that great, but I got really drawn in by those character moments. Because even with mediocre action, I'm still being somewhat entertained. Mediocre character drama doesn't have quite the same punch to it. Personally, I love the way Pyro's storyline turns out. I love the fact that he goes to the dark side. And I love the scene where Magneto is in the plane with them and says, what is your real name? You know, like, they get this whole idea about, like... There's the identities that are assigned to us, and that's that we're freaks, we're unworthy, we're outsiders. And then there's the identities that we create for ourselves, where we are fantastical and gods. And that's why I just love Magneto, is that he can just so poetically put something right. And in that moment where he wins Pyro over, I'm like, of course you go to him, because this guy gets it. He looks like an old dude in a silly helmet, but he is really is the crux and the voice of the mutant outrage. And you know what? I would have loved to see more of that because I agree with you, Stuart. Why not when they're in the plane, instead of just talking to Pyro, why doesn't he have all the younger X-Men, Rogue, Iceman around him, talking to him, really trying to persuade him? I would have loved to see that where you really get this debate between both sides and Magneto trying to pull them away. Well, the reason why is because there's a little bit of hard feelings. I mean, the last time these people saw each other, they were attacking each <laughs> other. I mean, Magneto has that snide little comment about, I love what you've done to your hair, to Rogue. Love it. I love that, yeah. Love that. <laughs> I mean, they're not exactly on good terms here. The movie's called X-Men United, but they're not united on firm ground. It's a shaky truce, and it will dissolve by the time we get to the climax. And Magneto flips the script and makes a very interesting new problem for the X-Men to solve. I'm glad that they don't make him too good, you know? I like that even when he's on their side, he's still going to be catty and nasty to them. It's, it's what, it's what yeah. I like about him as a villain, is he's able to pull off those lines. No, he is. He's awesome. He and Mystique, I'm telling you, they are the understandable rage. The only thing that I understand is that rage is not always the solution. And as a pacifist more than I am a militant, I do get that. And I am still with the X-Men. But I can understand why you joined the Brotherhood. That said, I was really shocked that he did because I, again, not a comic reader, didn't realize Pyro was a villain. I just thought he was another student. And when he goes off at the end, the first time I saw this film, I was like, damn. Pyro has always been a villain. He's He was recruited by Mystique to assassinate Senator Kelly in the comic book. So not a good guy there. I, I guess at least he had hopes to be a good guy in this film. Hey, I'm telling you, Senator Kelly is the bad guy. They're still good. They just have a different version of good. 
At least until they decide they want to kill all the humans. <laughs> yeah. I, I still say it's an allegiance of convenience. They're the bad guys. And then the last movie, I know you say Senator Kelly's the bad guy. No, Senator Kelly is the catalyst. Magneto is the bad guy. Proof point. The movie doesn't end when Senator Kelly dies. No, yeah, true. I see the bigotry as being the real root of the evil. If we could eliminate that, then there would be no need for any fights at all. There would be coexistence. Instead, Magneto is always trying to figure out how to angle the situation so that humans, homo sapiens, can pay for being bigoted and arrogant and thinking they're superior to mutants. I liked Iceman, and I'm just strangely happy that they kept the same actor as last time. They had no need to. They got brought in a different pyro this time. But I don't know Sean Ashmore, but I thought he was a good Iceman last time, and because he was flirting with Rogue a little the first time, I liked the continuity there that it, again, makes it feel more like one solid movie. Yeah, I agree. We saw just tastes of him and Pyro the last one, and what was happening. He was flirting with Rogue, and Pyro was acting up in class and being disobedient. And that is coming into bloom here. I like the fact that they build on the storylines that they created in the last one. This is not just a new chapter. This is a continuation and an expansion of Singer's original X-Men. Has it always been a fight between fire and ice? I thought that was a little too on the nose, that it would be Iceman versus Pyro, but... Uh, I mean, I guess it gives some kind of bookended to uh, their friendship. Doesn't it make sense? It makes more sense than Mr. Freeze teaming up with someone that likes plants. It makes more sense than lightning and toads. How about that? <laughs> I've seen stranger couplings in comic book movies, but like I said, it just feels a little too on the nose. It's just a little too like, oh, well, if I make ice, you make fire, I guess we can't get along. But you know what? It worked for me because I grew up watching Spider-Man and his amazing friends. That's where I know Iceman from. So it was Iceman and Firestar there, Iceman and Pyro here. It worked for me on that level because it's going back to a character that I knew from my childhood. Yeah, and remember, I mean, I, I'm sure most of the audience seeing this were teenage boys, so all the symbolism can't be too subtle. you got to have some obvious stuff in there for them. No, it's a comic book movie, and as such, it, maybe it broad strokes are the way to play it, but I guess I just can't imagine them ever being friends if one creates fire and one creates ice. It's like, we're just not going to mix. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that would be like a fundamental dichotomy, and perhaps even painful to be around the other. Yeah. I liked it. Again, I'm surprised I didn't see them becoming enemies at the end the first time. But again, I think I was thinking the Firestar type thing. So that said, I wish Iceman had something more to him. He is as bland and white bread as Cyclops was last time, isn't he? His role is boyfriend. Good guy. Period. If it wasn't for the scene with him and his parents and him having the douchebag brother who I calling the cops, really, that seems a little much. But if it wasn't for that, he'd have nothing, right? I have enough of him as what I want. I mean, he gets more screen time than a lot of the other students here. I mean, we do have a lot of new characters here with the Who's the big muscle dude with the steel skin? Colossus. Colossus. He's a Russian. <laughs> at, at least in the comics he is. We don't get to hear him. Or he does speak a little bit in this. Doesn't have that Russian accent. I couldn't tell you who he was. He wasn't in the last one, right? No. One thing I really liked about the school is seeing all the little characters, some of whom I know, some of whom I didn't. Like, in the last movie, we got to see the girl run through the walls. Kitty Pride, she's back here. Colossus. You also have Siren, the, at least in the comics, the daughter of Banshee, one of your favorite characters, Stuart, from Generation X. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was great. Some mutants just get the shaft, you know? I scream. <laughs> huh? That's better than I change the channel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's less useful, though. I mean, changing the channel, you might want to do that. <laughs> 
I kind of like that character. What's his name? Jones. He, he's sympathetic because you know we meet him and he just he looks like Jonathan Lipnicki. Yeah. Just, nothing cool could come out of this guy, but we find out that his mind's just racing and that I think that it's more than just changing the channels. I'd want to bet that he's probably hardwired with technology. That he probably has cooler yet to be developed powers. Do we ever see him again in comics or in anything? I think it was a character they just made for this movie. I wasn't able to find anything about him in the comic. I mean, there's so many X-Men. It's possible right. there's some little kid that changes the channels with his eyes. Nothing that I can recall. Though. Who is the kid that Wolverine's holding at the end when he makes his final declaration that he doesn't need to know about his past with Stryker, that he'd rather take this kid with a, a foul-looking tongue than to hang around and learn out who he really was? Is that somebody that ever does anything cool later in the comics? Artie? Yes, it was not Arnie, it was RT. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you played it twice to be sure. You are correct, sir. <laughs> I'm like, God, I got a n- nasty tongue now? I thought it might be Toad's, like, bastard son or something. He's got that forked tongue that he sticks out. Newt? Newt, yes. <laughs> there is a mutant named Artie. Not at all with a newt tongue or frog tongue, whatever that tongue is. Okay, so we get to the battle at Alkali Base. Xavier's gonna kill all the mutants under the influence of Jason. Lots of fights happen. Death Strike. Cyclops attacks Jean Grey under the influence of the wonderful brain juice. And in all the chaos, Mystique and Magneto get to Charles first. I love the fact that he's the only one that can break into Cerebro while everyone else is suffering. And Professor X is targeting all the mutants. And rather than save him, he has an opportunity to save his friend, you know, that they've had all this history together. And instead, he just tells Jason, nope. Change the target. Not all the mutants. Let's make it all the humans. That's pretty, that's pretty wicked. And you're right. It does remind you that Magneto's got a dark, dark heart. You never trust the guy. <laughs> I like that. Although I wonder if for someone who came from Auschwitz, would he really just turn to immediate genocide? I mean, isn't his whole point trying to stop the genocide of his people? I guess I just don't know if I could reconcile someone whose whole point is he's seen attempted genocide being so casual about. It's very interesting. I, yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. Meanwhile, what's going on with Gene and Scott? Because the last moments in this movie are all of a sudden all about them again. And I'm confused as to what Scott's been doing, why he turns back to the good side, and why she has to die to stop a waterfall when Storm can probably make a rain dance or something and make all the water go Dude, away, right? Or Iceman could freeze it, make a big ice <laughs> wall. Yeah, this has always, always bothered me. Jean Grey's sacrifice is dumb. I walked out of that theater naming a hundred different ways their powers could have fixed it. And the most simple of which is Nightcrawler bamfs over there, grabs her, and bamfs back just like he did Rogue earlier. Of course, they dropped the line, she won't let me teleport. Okay, why? Is she just so suicidal? Yeah, she seems hell-bent on being a martyr. Maybe she's just tired of the headache. Here's my problem with the whole suicide or sacrifice scene, whatever you want to call it, is I just don't feel they've developed Jean Grey enough, and they've had two films to really develop her. I don't feel they've developed her enough. I don't care really about why she you know her sacrifice it's supposed to be this pivotal moment all scott and logan are crying and i i just don't feel any of that you know we talked about how we all wondered why wolverine was so into her in the first film because she doesn't project she she doesn't do anything she gets headaches and, and screws up with her powers and now i'm supposed to feel really bad that she sacrificed herself here's my problem this has been a wolverine film the whole time where oh here's this secret lair where wolverine was made and all of a sudden we're going to the gene gray film 
it's a sudden shift where now it's all about her and this sacrifice and her, you know, giving up her life to save her friends. And I don't care because they've ignored her for most of the film. And obviously the next film is going to rectify that. It's going to be a Jean Grey film. And that's cool. I welcome that. But it comes all of a sudden. I, as someone that does not know the comic book character at all, really don't know what to expect or, or what she's all about. It comes so strange. It seems like there must have been a better way to write the scene that she would sacrifice her life for the others. I understand the need for that, but the way it plays out here is just dumb. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm not against the killing of the character. I would like the killing of the character to mean something. I couldn't even quite figure out why the dam broke. No, it's all very lucky, isn't it? I mean, it's all just so happenstance. And, and truly, I just feel like Singer wants to get his Star Trek two on and kill Spock to leave us in a question about what will happen in part three. It feels straight out of the playbook of Wrath of Khan. But like you said, with Spock, Spock was a major character that whole movie. We got to see his relationship with Savick and all of that. Here, Jean Grey's been off literally on a flight for a while. She really didn't get the kind of emotional resonance this film to make the sacrifice something that would make you feel bad. It's no big daddy. Oh, I agree. It would be like Wrath of Khan remade with Ahura sacrificing herself <laughs> to save the others. It's like, oh, well, that's too bad. Anyway, I wonder what Spock's doing today. That said, the very last scene where you see the phoenix under the water, I felt like such a dork walking out of there explains to my wife, but you see, she's going to be the phoenix, and she's going to come back, and it's going to be the whole next movie. I, like, totally spazzed on that. You and everyone in the movie theater I was at, because I I didn't even notice that there was something in the water. I don't know. It was. I saw a late show. I was tired. I was just like, oh, I'm just rippling water. And, like, no, someone was like, no, don't you know what it means? I'm like, I clearly do not. And then, yes, I got lectured about how there's a black phoenix or something coming. I was just aghast that they were going to try to do this epic storyline. I was excited because, again, I kind of felt like this story was okay. So much of it was a Wolverine origin story, which is the one thing we haven't really talked about here is we find out Wolverine's backstory. Stryker created him. Wolverine volunteered for it. It wasn't against his will. And... You know, it feels like that was really what a lot of this was here to tell us is answer Wolverine's questions that were raised in the first one. And that wasn't too exciting to me. I was really looking forward to some uh, Dark Phoenix next time. No, I, I didn't mind a change in the focus of character. It's just, you know, when you try to take such a big storyline, it's almost like you're setting yourself up for failure. I just wish that... It had felt like this had been built up to. I realized throughout the movie, Jean had not really had control of her powers, but it didn't feel like they were paying off something that they thought about in one and then built up to in two. It felt very random. I could have bought it all if her sacrifice felt legit, but as it is, she died for no reason that I can tell. She seemed to be a martyr for their laziness. Storm, <laughs> where were you? Or Iceman. When Iceman can save the day, you're doing yeah. something wrong. You didn't need to kill yourself. Right. <laughs> so I guess that leaves Jacob. Stewart, do you recommend X2, Jacob? You know, technically, yes, this is a better film than the first. The action scenes are better. But I had problems with the character moments. They didn't hit me as hard as with the first one, where I, I realized that the action scenes weren't working with that first film, but I was really drawn in to the character drama here. You get this 
two-sentence debate about faith or fear between Storm and Nightcrawler, and you get the moment at the end, I trust you, Nightcrawler, because I have faith. Like, it just doesn't pay off for me, those moments in this film. Yes, the action's better, but because of the length of film, those character moments just seem to slow everything down for me. It's still a good film. I'm going to give it a recommend, but it's a lower recommend than the first one. It's one of those that I'm on the fence with. I'm glad I watched it. Glad I watched it a second time for this podcast. It's not one of those that I'm going to go back to, though, on a regular basis. But yes, I do give X2, X-Men United, a slight recommend. Stewart. Well, I'm going to be much more enthusiastic. I would say that if this movie has been emulating Star Wars and Star Trek, it's done it right down to the way that I feel about it. It's taken something and taken the germ of the ideas and made them bigger and better. Like Empire Strikes Back, like Star Trek, this movie feels longer, bigger, more thorough, darker, more interesting, more exciting. All of the above, it has done the rare feat of made a sequel that is much better than a good original, and I am happy as the non-X-Men, non-comic book fan to say anybody should see this film. Strong recommend. And I also am going to recommend it, and I agree with Stuart that it's better than the first one in that the first one, honestly, at times, I felt myself growing bored. I never felt that with X-Men 2, but as I said earlier in this podcast, I just didn't feel this one had the emotional connection. It felt too crammed with characters. I really walked out the very first time feeling Cyclops got screwed, Storm got screwed, Jean Grey got screwed. It's, again, the Wolverine show. And Wolverine, Professor X, Magneto are all top build, and yet they still have all these characters they're trying to move around. It feels like, whereas Brian Singer in The Usual Suspects used every character perfectly and had them all so well balanced, here it felt like he had lost control and he couldn't keep all the balls in the air and some were falling. And so while I think it's slightly improved upon the original, it's still just a solid recommend. It's a B recommend. And like Jacob, it's not one I'm going to return to again and again. I enjoy it when I watch it, and I highly suggest everybody get a chance to see it if you enjoy this type of film. But I don't think it's something special. It's just pretty good. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me to discuss X2. We're going to be back next week discussing X-Men The Last Stand. And if you're one of our extra special donation people, you've already gotten Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, the movie series trilogy we're doing right now for those with the coin to help us out. You know that we are now doing a vote for what to watch next. Come June, we're either going to watch and review Super 8 the new J.J. Abrams, Steven Spielberg, Alien Invasion, something or rather movie, or we're going to see Green Lantern, the Ryan Reynolds superhero origin story. And it's going to be decided on by you and your vote. And I just got to say, I'm championing for people to vote Green Lantern because, let's face it, Super 8 is probably going to be okay. We don't know a whole lot about it still, but it's probably going to be okay. Green Lantern could be really, really good. Not on this earth. Or it could be really, really bad. I've seen nothing in the previews that makes me want to see it, but I will go if you tell me I need to, because there is nothing about that, particularly in a summer where I'm already having to watch every superhero movie ever invented, it feels like, that I need to do another one, particularly that one. But hey, I'll do it in 3D if that's what you tell me you want to do. But you got to go to our webpage and all the instructions for doing it will be there at nowplayingpodcast.com. And again, you have until Memorial Day to donate to get all of the 
Jaws podcast. We've released them, but you can still get them with a donation of $10 or more using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. And yes, if you hit that secret special number, you will also get immediately Poltergeist 1 and 2 and coming soon Poltergeist 3. Plus, not to mention with the Jaws, you get Deep Blue Sea. All of that's available for those who help support Now Playing. And remember, Now Playing will always be free. This show was free. This is just an extra thank you to the listeners who help us cover our costs for things like 3D tickets to Green Lantern. Or Super 8. Hint, hint. And we'll be back next week with X-Men 3, The Last Stand. Talk to you then. Today's attack was only our first salvo. Our war will rage, and your cities will not be safe. Your streets will not be safe. You will not be safe. And to my fellow mutants, I make you this offer. Join us or stay out of our way. Thank you for listening to the now-playing X-Men movie retrospective series. We are the future, Charles, not them. They no longer matter. Part of our Marvel Comics movie series. Told you if you came down this road, you would like what you found. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another X-Men film, leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's X-Men First Class. The professor trusted you were smart enough to discover this on your own. He gives you more credit than I do. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics films, such as Howard the Duck, Man-Thing, and Kick-Ass, as well as reviews of other series, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Predator, Philip K. Dick, Tron, and many more. And individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. This is also crazy sounding. You said the same thing about my other ideas four years ago, but everything I said I could do, I've done. And now you're a chitting millionaire. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Marvel movie films with other listeners. Show's over. Show's never over for us. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. Links to our social media pages are found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Do I look like a man who exaggerates? You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you have any decency? Where's your sense of gratitude? I think I have needs! I think I'm just here to be your dream grid guru? I want out of here! I want to have the big time! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. The whole world's going to hell. You're just going to sit there? Let's go. Now Playing's X-Men retrospective series is edited by Alex, Carlos, and Arnie. They say you're the bad guy. Is that what they say? Now Playing is not affiliated with Marvel Enterprises or 20th Century Fox. The Marvel characters and all the Marvel Universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Marvel Publishing Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Oh, you get the point! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Apparently we have some issues with authority. 
Now playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2011. All rights reserved. Class dismissed. Lose the feed? Are we still live? My wife had really enjoyed the first X-Men. She was really pushing for X-Men 2 in a summer where I was pushing for Tomb Raider 2 and Hulk. Whoa, whoa, and... whoa, whoa. She was pushing for X-Men or she was pushing for Hugh Jackman as Wolverine in an X-Men film? She was saying, take me to the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> and read between the lines. Yes. <laughs> well, Jacob, do you think I was pushing for Tomb Raider 2 for the stunts? <laughs> I, I know, I get you. I know why you're pushing for it. Because you're a big video game nerd, right? <laughs> exactly. Professor X's mutant tracking computer, Cerebro. Or as Stuart calls it, Cerebro. <laughs> hey, man, whatever. Yo, where are the mutants? <laughs> <laughs> talks in bonics, I love it. Yup, yup. Yup, yup. <laughs> Played by Sean Asmort. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> I can hardly blame you though. Did you see a look at this cast? It's like Brian Cox, Alan Cumming, Hugh Jackman. All right, is this a porno? I didn't mean to say Sean Asmore. Jackman wants Asmore right right away. When our movie starts, Stryker is taking control of Kurt Stryker is taking control of Kurt Wagner, a blue-skinned, three-fingered, tailed mutant who went by the codename Nightcrawler. Under um, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt you. Isn't it Wagner? Yeah, it's Wagner. Okay. Is, is it pronounced Wagner? It's uh, every yes. German, German German W's are V's. Yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't sure. I was afraid if I said Wagner, it would be douchey. Like I'm, you know, uh, like I'm Nicaraguan Spanish, you know? <laughs> well, you could say it incorrectly and see how it goes. I want, I want a burrito. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The affected, the affected foreign yeah. language. So that's why I actually stumbled the first time because I almost said Wagner and I was afraid somebody would say shit. All right. When he disappears, I mean, I thought they did a great job with Nightcrawler. And you got to think that they sh would have been tempted to Jar Jar, right? I mean, seriously. Sh is anyone tempted to Jar Jar something? I would, something never think, good? <laughs> I would never think anyone would be attempting to do what they did with Jar Jar, actually. No. Well, I mean, in all CGI attempting characters. Attempting to Hulk it. Let's say Hulk it. Hulk it, Gollum it. <laughs> Attempt to go CGI. You know, at least she doesn't have to f*** Billy Bob Thornton, I guess. Huh? You never saw Monsters Ball? Monsters, That's what she yeah. won the Oscar for. No, no, I didn't. No. 